0: I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Lost logic. Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. Okay, we are live now. Okay, so welcome. My name is Elias Ayala, and I am with uh, Christian apologist Eric Hernandez. I I like to also introduce him as a Christian philosopher. Um, I I think he's a a sharp guy. He's very knowledgeable in philosophy, and um, I think philosophy plays a very helpful role when we're doing apologetics and things like that. So um, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of take it from there. Yeah. Can you see me? Yeah, I can see you. Yeah.
1: Okay. For some reason, my camera's not showing me, but, uh, yeah, my name's Eric Hernandez. Um, oh,
0: I don't see you now. I just see a picture of you now.
1: <laughs> what? Anything? Nothing. I don't know why my camera's not working. Should I join back in?
0: Uh, yeah, try. Okay. All right. Well, he's going to try to, um, join us in, in just a few moments. Um, just to kind of give background, um, about myself. Um, once again, my name is Elias Ayala. I am a uh, Christian apologist myself, a youth uh, worker, and um, and I am also the founder of Revealed Apologetics, which is a Christian apologetics ministry headed by myself, in which I focus on um, what's called presuppositional apologetics, which is a particular um, apologetic methodology, which um, I believe is what is revealed to us in Scripture. Scripture actually gives us a method of defending the faith um and so i tend to focus on that kind of apologetic um, methodology although there are many different kinds of apologetic methodologies and i think we would all do well in learning from one another um it once you when you begin to study apologetics and apologetic methodology what you will find is that our theology is the soil out of which our apologetic methodology Will, will come forth. And so you have different methodologies because you have people who hold to, you know, slightly different theological perspectives and theological commitments. So uh, be that as it may, I think we all have a lot to learn from one another. Um, as a presuppositionalist myself who follows um, people like Cornelius Van Til, uh, Greg Bonson, John Frame, there's some variations in those folks as well. Um, I also benefit, you know, a lot of my presuppositional friends would would probably be like, oh, here we go. But I've actually greatly benefited and continue to benefit um, from a lot of what William Lane Craig puts out as well. I think he's a, a fine philosopher, although there are obvious uh, disagreements given that I'm a, a Calvinist, a presuppositionalist. And he's more on the uh, Wesleyan kind of uh, tradition along with, um, you know, he holds to Molinism and some other aspects that I would differ with. But definitely we are all part of the body of Christ. We could benefit from one another. And things like this, the discussion we're about to have with myself and Eric, um, I think this is something that we can um, learn from one another and benefit the body, um, even though there are some differences there. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up for that. Um, But Eric, why don't you take uh, some time to introduce yourself? And now your face is, uh, you do look yellow though, but I- uh, Yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) You ever see the movie with Eddie Murphy, The Golden Child? No, I haven't okay (laughs) you look super yellow i
1: don't know why when i do that it
0: fixes now you look fine and then if you put your put your hand down then it goes right back to yellow (laughs) it's the glory or something yeah okay uh, well
1: um yeah so a little bit about myself my name is eric hernandez um i am the apologetics lead for texas baptist um and uh which is uh, a baptist general convention of texas uh got into apologetics um really seriously my freshman year because uh i took uh, some philosophy classes anybody who's heard my story is familiar with this uh those who aren't um basically i I remember my youth pastor saying one time that if anyone ever told you that uh to prove to them that god exists you simply say well prove to me he doesn't and uh and that that yellow stuff is really distracting so um um I was like, okay, that's great. I'm gonna keep that in the back of my pocket. You know, I'm gonna use that next time, whatever. Um, And then I remember my first week of philosophy class, the professor talks about something called the burden of proof. And he says if someone uh, asks you to, uh, I mean, if you if you believe something, basically, you have to bear the burden to prove the thing that you believe or say is cl- true. So if you make a truth claim, it's, your, it's up to you to bear that burden to prove what you claim is true. And then as a random example, he said, so if you believe in God and someone asks you why, it's inappropriate of you to shift the burden of proof and to say, well, prove to me why he doesn't. Since you made the claim, you bear the burden. Now, uh, when I heard that, I kind of felt like my house of cards collapsed. But, you know, what I also came to realize is that if there is the... If you do say there is no God, then that, too, is a truth claim, and you, too, would bear the burden of proof. Regardless, um, even biblically speaking, you begin to learn where the Bible says to be ready to give an answer to those who ask for the hope that's in you. So apologetics is giving a defense of what you believe, and, and being a Christian apologist, I, I give a defense of what I believe, uh, what Scripture says, who God is, the nature, uh, the work of Christ. Uh, thing, any, Anything revolving you giving an answer or a reason for which you believe what you do, you're engaged in apologetics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think a lot of people have a common misconception about the Christian faith and what we're able to demonstrate. And uh, you get a lot of a lot of uh, these kinds of things, you know, well, religion is just something you believe in. So you can't really prove it. It's just it's just faith. So if, and I'm sure you've heard this before. What, what would you say to someone who says, hey, you know, religion is something you can't really prove the truth of your of, of the Bible. That's really something you just take on faith. How would you, from your perspective, uh, address that common, um, objection.
1: Um, well, it, it it's funny they say that one, I would ask, um, so one thing I, I'd recommend to anybody, uh, there's a book called tactics by Greg Coco. There's a lot of useful information there on how to have conversations. And I think really the thing is, uh, we need to learn how to talk and engage with people in a meaningful way. And a, one way to do that is don't get in such a defensive mode immediately. Begin to ask, uh, a questions for clarification if you need to. So for example, um, well, the example you asked, a lot of times people ask questions with presuppositions Mm -hmm. and perhaps this is why people accuse me of being a presuppositionalist. Um, but of course I would argue we're just doing good philosophy. That's good thinking, rational, reasonable thinking. So if someone says, well, you can't prove your religion, whatever they want to call it, uh, it's just belief. I would ask them, why, why would you, before I answer the question, why would you assume I can't prove something of that nature? What, what is it specifically you're saying that I can't prove? Um, And then that kind of gets to the deeper heart of what they're asking because a lot of times people would just make assertions like that. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that assertions are not arguments. So if someone says, well, you just believe in fairy tales. Okay, why do you think it's a fairy tale? In other words, I have no obligation to respond to an assertion. If you give me an argument, a reason for which you're claiming the assertion that you do, we can interact with that. But if you're just going to make assertions, we really can't get anywhere. So I would ask why it is they would think that I can't prove something like uh, uh, whatever they claim that my faith or religion is. Another thing I would mention is, well, there's a difference between how I came to believe or how I know God exists and Christianity is true versus how I can demonstrate it. And when we make those distinctions, it's very helpful because I may give an argument that I hadn't thought of when I was five years old. And, you know, I was pretty much born in the church, so I grew up in church. I had my doubts, of course but just because I didn't think about that argument when I was five doesn't mean it's not a valid reason to show something that we believe is true. Um, So there are a lot of things that can confirm also what we believe. And again, to get the conversation started, I would ask the person, why would they think I can't believe something or prove something or demonstrate something like that? Because what we're essentially asking about are reasons for which we believe something. And Mm -hmm. if someone says, I can't have a reason for that, I would want to know their reason for why they think I can't have those reasons.
0: Now, OK, so we we have the common, uh, you know, people would say, well, you just believe on faith, you know, and you just respond in the way that you did. So now how would we respond to someone who says, um, well, I mean, clearly there, there's no evidence for, uh, you know, for the claims of the Bible. Now I'm going to do something a little different. I, I'm I'm going to ask you, what evidence is there for a particular event in the Bible? uh because this is sometimes people don't go straight to the foundations you know how do you know god exists this out of the other thing they'll say listen you know someone walking on water there's no evidence that jesus actually did that so why do you believe it so how would you how would you uh, uh, respond to that kind of objection since it, it it's not a direct give me evidence for god's existence how would you navigate that to get to some of the more fundamental and more important issues um that's really kind of hidden underneath the surface there
1: yeah, um, so depending on how much time I have with someone, um, and, and, you know, I, I might get some heat for this and sometimes I have, um, but I put it this way. Let's say, before I answer the question, let's say I have one hour before. Uh, let's say I know that in one hour, let's say Christ is returning, and I know this, right? So I have one hour with this person. And again, we're just, we're just talking hypothetical here. And let's say a lot of times they want to bring up the validity of the Bible or the, whether or not evolution is true or how the earth is. If I have one hour to talk to you, my goal is to demonstrate and show that God exists and Christianity is true.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: in other words, let's say once you, in other words, once you grant those, once those two things, once a person comes to understand that, then the, the, that's the gospel there, uh, sharing Christ and, and, and whatnot. I would rather have someone go to heaven with false beliefs than go to hell with false beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, if Someone is willing to accept Christ but says, but you know what? That one part about him walking on water, I can't believe that. I say, okay, well, let's, let, let's put that aside. Let's say he didn't walk on water. What would that prove? Let's say evolution is true. What would that prove? Let's say the earth is old or young. What would that prove? Because Mm -hmm. really, they're not asking these questions because it's as if those things are the very stumbling blocks or the strongholds. The Bible calls uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, excuse me, uh, 4, 5, and 6, it talks about spiritual warfare, and it talks about strongholds. And it says that these strongholds are false ideas, uh, philosophies, ideologies, presuppositions, that people hold on to, that keep them from coming to the knowledge of God. And the Bible says we're supposed to destroy these strongholds. So that to me is apologetics. So when they ask those kind of questions, I, first I want to know, is this really what's, what's, what's keeping you from coming to the knowledge of God or, or from um, coming into relationship with Christ or whatever the case is? So I often try to, I don't want to say dodge, because I'm not, it's not a question that I'm dodging as if that's a defeater. I'm wanting to know what is it really that that's keeping you from accepting any of this is true? Because even if we gave up Jesus walked on water, where does that get us? And that's where I bring back. Well, let's get to the the foundations. In fact, I would even say, well, if Christ was God in flesh, in other words, you don't have to believe that right now. But if Christ was God in flesh, could he not have walked on water? And I don't know anybody who would say, no, he couldn't, because obviously if God is in flesh and sure, he can do that. So the question really isn't we have no evidence for it or that's silly to believe. The question is, is it, is it a true claim? Well, that true claim is based on the fact that God exists. So let's get to that. Maybe we should get to that first. And again, depending on the conversation, there's no cookie cutter way to address any specific objection, but you really don't want to waste time going over things that aren't really objections
0: or stumbling blocks to them. You want to get to the heart of the issue. Okay. So no, why, you know, uh, why do I have a problem believing that? Well, I don't believe, uh you know your religious book why should I believe your religious book over some other religious book you know you hear the claim that you know christianity is just one voice in you know in a sea of other competing voices what makes what makes christianity stand apart from any other religious perspective how would you answer that
1: well uh, a lot of different ways um first of all this because this is often used as an objection as if because there are so many different religions christian it's it's not likely that Christianity is true or sometimes it's not re- really even an argument um, because in other words I say yes there are a lot of different religions therefore what
0: and, and, well, and I pu- well if if so so you have another religion right so we're role-playing yes yeah so we're role-playing yeah I'm sorry mm-hmm. <laughs> I should have said I'm role-playing by the way for those who who are watching I'm a Christian so <laughs> I'm just you know trying to step in the shoes and here I think a lot of people find this helpful because we can talk about apologetics in theory um, but then when it all boils down to it, well, what do I say when I hear this objection? And sometimes it's hard for people to put the theory into practice unless they kind of see that played out. So that's really the the, the heart of what I'm doing. So um, I lost my train of thought there. So if if um, I don't believe in God because there is no evidence for the truth of your holy book, um, I don't believe in Christianity because there's no evidence for your holy book over and against what you know another holy book might claim. So for let's say, for example, Islam. Islam makes a claim, Christianity makes a claim, and, you know, who's to say uh, which perspective is right?
1: Yeah, so since we're all playing here, I would say, uh, so are are you assuming that unless the Bible's true, Christianity can't be true? Say that again? Are you assuming that unless the Bible's true, Christianity can't be true?
0: If the Bible's true, then Christianity would be true.
1: Sure, but that's not what I asked. I asked... Are you arguing that unless the Bible's true, Christianity can't be true? Is that what you're arguing? I suppose if the Bible's
0: false, then Christianity can't be true, right?
1: Well, that, that's my question to you, because let's say, let's... Uh, so the Bible hasn't always existed. If God exists, would He have existed even without the Bible being written?
0: Uh, yeah, God would, God would exist without the Bible being written, but we wouldn't know about him unless he's revealed himself. And so you believe the Bible is a revelation of God, so that's how, we, that's how we know about him, right?
1: Right. So then you would have to then equally concede that without the Bible, no one knew who God was because he hadn't revealed himself, as if the Bible is the only way God can reveal himself. Is that what you're saying? Uh,
0: okay, so yeah. So uh, it wouldn't logically follow that the Bible isn't there, then we wouldn't know anything about God since God has other means that he can reveal himself.
1: Right, because the Bible hasn't always been written. So the sure. question really is: First, I mean, does God exist? Are there reasons to believe in God? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I am not an atheist is because I also believe there are reasons to not be an atheist. Um, for example, uh, we look at things like consciousness. Uh, um, I don't know if I don't know how much of the role play you want to get into, but here's something sure. I like to ask uh, non-believers: um, Would you agree that if God did not exist? Then only physical things would exist. You know, there's nothing immaterial, no spirits, no demons, no angels. It's all physics and chemistry. Would you agree with that? If God
0: didn't exist, um, well, this is very interesting. If I could speak as as just Eli now, not outside the role play, yeah, I've actually heard atheists who believe that there are supernatural realities, but there's no absolute God. That they would concede there there may be a spiritual aspect to the world, but that doesn't mean that there is an all encompassing God that grounds it all. Maybe that's just the way reality is. And now I don't agree with that, but um. What happens when you have someone kind of concede that point? Yeah, I would ask them what reasons they have to believe that. I'm not. I don't have a reason to believe it. I'm just saying I don't think it's impossible. I don't think that if God doesn't exist, that you that it necessarily rules out any form of the supernatural.
1: Right, and I wouldn't say necessarily either. But if uh, as a non-believer you're going to concede supernatural, something supernatural exists, I would wonder why or where that would come from. Um, yeah. So, Uh, That's what I'm saying. So do you want you want to continue the role play? I
0: don't know which one which Well, if you want to step out and just kind of expand on that a bit I've actually heard atheists uh, actually say that they believe that there may be or there can be a supernatural element But that doesn't mean that there is a God now whether that's consistent with what they believe is another issue, but people do say that Um, Which again reminded me of the, the, the fact the fact that people aren't a cookie cutter. I'm an atheist and so therefore I believe the same thing as every other atheist. So you you know you do know that there are differentiations between the specific beliefs that an atheist could hold, and not all of them agree on everything. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah. Sorry, my mic is muted. There. That's uh, okay. No, absolutely. So, um, we'll we'll go to something like this. Uh, so we're um, let's talk about consciousness, um, because usually an atheist would concede. Uh, that if there is no God, then we should not expect non-physical things to exist. And uh, and again, depending on who the person is, if they say, well, you know, I do, I do think non-physical things could exist, and that's that's a different statement, um, because here's what we're getting at. So you have someone like uh, uh, Churchill, uh, who's a philosopher, who's an atheist, who, um, uh, I think it's Paul, uh, Church Lynn, excuse me, Paul, Patricia and Paul Church Lynn, who, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically argue that, look, um, Evolution is the only thing we have and you would also have other atheists like Thomas Nagel arguing something similar that if Evolution is the only thing we have the only game in town, which if you're an atheist That's all you have to explain why anything at all exists. All you have is a collection of physical things coming together to make more and more physical stuff and How can you rearrange Legos? Let's say and get consciousness coming into existence because I would argue that consciousness is not physical and if consciousness is not physical there was no way to fit this into an evolutionary perspective. This was in part uh, Thomas Nagel, who was and is one of the most uh, uh, probably top 50 intellectual atheists uh, around and living today, who wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos mm-hmm. by the uh, materialistic neo Darwinian um, evolutionary perspective is probably almost certainly false. I, I may have missed a few words there, but that, that's his book. And he argues that if consciousness exists, we can't get it from just rearranging particles of matter, because essentially that's what evolution is—you're rearranging stuff. And well, okay, I don't want to say essentially, at the metaphysical level, uh, at the level beyond uh, what the creatures are doing, you are just having physical stuff rearrange itself, be it uh, be it through mutation or something else. You're mm-hmm. not going to get consciousness coming into existence. Um, so. All that to say, and and as you can see, we're already going you know zero to sixty really fast.
0: The convers- <laughs> hey, that's, that's how the conversations usually go. They're not they're not cookie cutter. They're sloppy, and you can go from talking to really surfacey things right down to very deep things. So I think that's good. Absolutely right, um, and, and I say that because I don't want to scare anybody away who's
1: saying, well, I don't want to do a project I want to. I don't. I don't know what Eric's talking about or what the atheist is talking about. One thing I want to say before moving on is you go with what you're comfortable with and yep. find something you're interested in and begin to study it as much as you. I mean, dive deeply into it. I go to consciousness because that's one of the things I've studied more the soul, Perfect. consciousness, metaphysical things. Somebody else might go to uh, his history, th- to science, whatever the case is. There is something that you're passionate about. And, and this is kind of sometimes my, and now we're just, I'm, I'm side, side note here. This is kind of sometimes my issue and problem with, with, Modern-day church in general not one particular church, but you'll have someone who goes to church Let's say there's a father who goes to church who can name Every NFL player that uh, on their favorite team and all the stats but can't name to you three or four uh, scriptures And can't give you one argument for god's existence um if we Really have the truth uh, As cs lewis said christianity can either be very important or not important at all But the one thing it can't be is moderately important uh, um, and of course, I'm, I'm, I was paraphrasing. So, going back to the the, the the role play here, if there is no God, we have no reason for anything like consciousness to come into existence. And I would argue first that consciousness is not physical. And uh, and at this point, the atheist usually doesn't let you talk that long. Or, or I don't want to say the atheist, the person who you're talking to is not going to let you talk that long. So I don't know if you want to jump in or 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 what what
0: what you well, see here. Well, if you being. were to, okay, so if you were to say you know, that, uh, there's no good reason to believe in consciousness, uh, unless there's a God, uh, what, it, what, it, what do you do with someone who holds to kind of a form of epiphenomenalism where they believe that the mind is, is really kind of a, a byproduct of the brain. It's kind of like what smoke, you know, what smoke is to fire, right? You could, you have the fire and then there's the smoke fire would be kind of the analogy of the brain smoke would yeah. be, you know, the analogy of the mind. How, how would you respond to someone who holds to that position that it's kind of a natural... Byproduct uh, through evolution that something like this would would come about. Yeah. So for role playing, I would ask them why they would believe that. Uh, well, I that's why it is someone believes. If anything, if the person doesn't believe that, what what would you what would you say if they used that as a possible explanation for consciousness, which just goes to show that the conclusion that God must be the foundation of that doesn't necessarily follow.
1: Well, sure, it doesn't necessarily follow, but what follows first is that naturalism isn't true. So there's more to more to reality than the uh, physical, that there are non-physical things that exist. Um, if someone wants to go into something like epiphenomenalism, which is what you described, then I would say then free will doesn't exist. Libertarian freedom doesn't exist. Uh, which would, then I would ask, so I, I, the, I, I try to let the conversations kind of flow on their own. And as you already pointed out, these things go zero to 60 fast and go sure. from something simple to complex. So I would ask, so if we're role playing, so if you, you do realize that epiphenomenalism rejects free will, are, are are you, do you reject free will as well as claim that consciousness is something that could just
0: pop up out of the physical? Um, I, I suppose a person could be like, I don't know how it works, but I don't see how it's impossible. And so the conclusion, it must be God, doesn't really hold any water. I mean, people would, would accuse you of, say, using some form of God of the gaps fallacy that sure, you, know, sure. you, posit, you posit God based on our ignorance of how this all works. Mm-hmm. And so far I haven't unpacked anything yet, so I haven't argued
1: yet uh, sure. for my position. I'm saying there's no reason to believe it. In other words, I'm saying if we set God aside, not therefore consciousness, I'm saying set God aside, set anything supernatural aside, how do you get non-physical? Um, and I'm not, I wasn't asking how it works. I'm asking if you're going to conclude epiphenomenalism, that consciousness somehow emerges from, the brain uh, and there's different forms of that that would also entail that free will cannot exist so my first question is do you realize that these two are going to go hand in hand and are you rejecting the notion of free will
0: Mm -hmm. so then you would go if 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 someone rejects the notion of free will then you'll go into some kind of refutation of a position that denies free will now we don't want to get too much into there because because from our theological backgrounds, we we actually have a disagreement as to the nature of free will, so we don't have to go there. But sure. I see what you would I see where you would go with that um, kind of challenging the foundation. If if that's true, free will doesn't exist. Without free will, then you would argue there's no rationality. And if there's no rationality, what's the objection?
1: Yeah, and 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 we what well, we could agree is that you know to to be because I like you a lot, and I know uh, you know we're friends, so we can be sure to say uh, free just free will. You know okay. any type of free will. Um, but but notice so far I haven't started arguing or giving a case. I'm s- still just trying to understand where the person's coming from. I'm I'm trying to right. understand their position. Sure. Uh, when you do apologetics, that's one of the things you want to start doing. And notice there's no fighting so far. There's no arguing. It's a genuine attempt to understand the person, and that alone speaks volumes. Sure. That, that alone speaks volumes to the person because oftentimes, uh, before we get back to the conversation, I've had. Uh, um, talks with a lot of atheists, at least once or twice a month, I get emails or calls from parents saying, would you please talk to my friend, son, daughter, cousin, because they're having these questions. They don't believe in God or et cetera, et cetera. And I want to say 9.9 times out of 10. After a, a good conversation with someone, they'll almost without fail say, you know, you're the first Christian that I've met that could answer one of my questions that was interested mm-hmm. in talking to me. I get mixed reactions. My first reaction is excitement that, well, here's my number. Let's keep in touch. My second reaction is heartbreak because I'm thinking, and how many Christians have you come across and how long have you been in church? How long have you been around church people? And I'm the first one that was willing to listen to you and engage with what you're saying and what you're trying to wrestle with intellectually. I mean, that alone says a lot about what we're doing, about about the kind of spiritual warfare that's going on, about our culture. Now, going back to the conversation, um, if the person will concede, okay, then yeah, there's no free will, I would say, well, then what's the point of talking with me? Because by talking with me, we're eventually going to argue for our positions. And you're essentially going to try to convince me or show me that there's reasons to believe what you believe or the reasons for which you believe, which would assume that I have the freedom to listen and believe you and the freedom to change my mind in the first place. So if there is no free will, what's the point of having these conversations? Mm-hmm. And right there, even that alone. So here's a perfect example. And I'm glad we brought, brought, we brought this up. I was at a, a Christmas party once. And I was invited to years ago and for some reason every time i meet people they always want to talk about apologetics i have no idea why um <laughs> of course uh, of course somehow it comes up don't um, know about you people just <laughs> it's it's the it's yellow, yellow. So hinge that the people are like hey i want to ask him about apologetics yeah this guy looks yellow i think he knows something about apologetics um so we started talking um and he was telling me how he used to be a christian and again i am just wanting to know about the person and i said okay so what what led you you know to to convert you know according to him. And he said, well, I began to study. I began, you know, I stopped listening to what people were just telling me. And I feel sometimes a lot of Christians are just born into that. And that's why, you know, sometimes they're brainwashed or led to believe that. So I, I went and studied for myself. I looked at all the evidence and, you know, even, and then he's the one that brought up free wrote interestingly, that he began to look and he saw that determinism was true and, and et cetera, et cetera. So after that, I simply asked, and I kind of said what you told me. I said, well, let me ask you this question. If you don't believe free will exist, do you feel that you freely came to believe that free will didn't exist? Or do you feel that you freely came to be an atheist on your own accord by looking at the evidence for yourself? Mm-hmm. And so, it's as if he had never
0: thought about that. Are you saying that atheism, uh, and just for clarification for people who might not be making this connection, are you, are you claiming that atheism uh, Implies or entails. I want to be very careful when I use the word necessarily <laughs> um, that it entails um, the denial of free will. I would yes. I would uh, in the
1: process of in the book I'm writing, one of my art chapters is on free will. And what I would argue is that it is most logically consistent mm-hmm. to believe in determinism if atheism is true. And I would argue atheism being the belief that there is no god. And some people have an issue with that uh, definition, but it's another another story for another time. Mm-hmm. Um, because if there's no God, all you have is physical things interacting with more physical things. Right. And if physicalism is true, which again, I would argue would be the most logically consistent position to take because there's no reasons for which to believe otherwise, other than special pleading and ad hoc to try and not lose an argument in these kind of conversations.
0: But yes, yeah, that would use mean- the word Use the word physicalism. Why don't you define that for folks who might not know what that means?
1: Yeah, so physicalism is a view that human beings are purely physical things with only physical parts and properties.
0: There's nothing non-physical to them. So what's wrong with that? Why don't you unpack that? I think that'd be helpful. What's wrong? Someone might say, well, that's right. Yeah, we're matter and motion. What's the big deal? So
1: uh, I'll put it to you though. My professor put it to me uh, my freshman year. He walks into class one day and this is a professor I was warned to not take his class or I could lose my faith. And I thought, sign me up, you know, because at this time I'm, I'm, I've am I'm got questions myself, but I also realized that if Christianity's true, I need to know why. And if it's not true, I also need to know why. And if any, if somebody's a guy to show me that it's not, this guy should be the man for the job because of how much I've heard about him. So he walks in and he pretends like he's holding up this, this pill. And he says, religion wants us to believe that there is no that there is a soul. And because of this, we can have hope in an afterlife. We can uh, look forward to uh, going to heaven. But if the soul is not physical, how is it that this tiny Pill, Which is physical let's say it's an antidepressant pill if I take it it changes the moods and changes how I feel which are allegedly in my soul Because every time we look at the brain all we see is neurons firing and every time we look at the brain and body All we see are the base elements of carbon oxygen nitrogen hydrogen all those chemicals But you never find anything like a soul So how is it that if the soul is non-physical and this tiny physical pill can change the things in my soul? How do we explain that he says well, I'll tell you how because there is no soul, there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no afterlife, and we are just physics and chemistry all the way down. That's what we've seen every time we pull back the curtain, all you see is physical. There is n- nothing non-physical, and we need to learn to live with that fact and move on with our lives. So if all we are are physical things, which is physicalism, and there are different versions of that, but we'll, we'll keep it there, When well, there's no soul. I would argue if there's no soul, there can't be a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Christianity can't be true. So these these kind of questions are are very important uh, uh, to to who and what we are, to the nature of what we are. If we're made in the image of God, then it would be incredibly helpful to know what God is like and what his nature is like, because we would in some sense have a reflection or reflect his image. And I would argue that we're ultimately not physical things. We have a body, but we are not physical. I am a soul that has a body. I don't have a soul. And I use scarecrows. I am a soul that has a body. Um, and then I would argue if there's no soul, there's there can't be consciousness, there can't be free will. And then I would lead to there can't be uh, rationality and there can't be moral responsibility. Going back to the conversation I had with this person, I brought that up. So I pretty much said, so do you think that you freely came to be an atheist? And, he's, and he kind of paused like he had never thought about that. And I said, on top of that, if, People who are committing crimes are caused to do this. In other words, if I have a puppet and I cause this puppet to hit somebody over the head, we don't blame the puppet. We blame the person who was controlling the puppet. Mm -hmm. If there's no soul and you're just physical and there's no free will, then you were caused to act by the chemistry uh, and the brain patterns or the the firings of neurons in your brain, which are caused by something else prior to yourself, even prior to your existence. If we don't blame the puppet because – it was caused by something else. Why would I blame the murderer for murdering or the rapist for raping if they, too, were caused by prior conditions beyond their control? So you would so you would say
0: that we would be the puppets and the law of physics would be the puppet master?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Moreland once said you don't shoot a gun in the air, and the bullet says, you know, I don't feel like obeying uh, Newton's law of gravity. I'm going to turn left instead of go up. Uh, ice doesn't choose when it wants to freeze. Ice doesn't—I um, mean, excuse me, water doesn't choose at what degree it wants to freeze. These are all bound and guided by the laws of chemistry and physics. If all mm-hmm. you are is chemistry and physics and you're just a purely physical object, then it's just like dominoes or any other purely physical object that is called to affect things outside
0: of themselves. I'm sorry? Now, you said Now you said that uh, if there's no free will, then there is no rationality, and if there's no rationality, then, um, you know— Well, so I, there's no—
1: in other words, I have a lot of atheists who pride themselves
0: on I know a lot of atheists who pride themselves.
1: And again, this isn't characteristic of all atheists, I don't want to sound sure, that wrong, sure. um but who pride themselves in being atheists. And especially the real nasty ones on on like Facebook and YouTube and stuff, who pride themselves in saying things like I'm not brainwashed by religion. I'm a free thinker. I love that. That they're free thinkers because they're not bound or or brainwashed by religion. They're free to think for themselves and they take this intellectual integrity and pride of claiming that they on their own accord chose to examine the evidence for themselves so they call themselves free thinkers. Right. Well, I see that the irony is that the, if there is no God and there's no soul and no free will, the okay. last thing you can call yourself is a free thinker because your decision to be an atheist was not a decision you freely made for intellectual reasons. It was something you were caused to believe by factors outside of your control. We don't say that um, uh, a, a rock doesn't take pride in having five points because it, it, there's, of course, rocks aren't conscious, but there's nothing to the rock that it did on its own accord or th- there's no sense of pride because there's nothing it brought about itself to have five points. If you have no free will, then you can't take pride in your beliefs if by having a sense of an intellectual integrity in your beliefs assumes you freely came to that conclusion based on the evidence that you freely chose to examine for yourself. So, if the atheist wants to hold on to that sense of intellectual integrity, they have to assume free will. I would argue the only way free will is even possible if a soul exists, and then I would continue to argue that souls aren't something that fit on naturalism or evolution, and that you would have to go back to something that has always existed that was immaterial by its very nature, and that would explain the reason for which anything else exists. There's a lot to unpack there, but that's, that's the gist of it.
0: Now you're saying that if there is no free will, if atheism is true, there's no free will, and if there's no free will, there's no rationality. So what's the objection? Now, if there is no rationality, would you also say that if atheism is true, there's no knowledge?
1: Absolutely. That's another area I'd go to, is that um, if we take knowledge to be a justified true belief, at minimum. Of course, there's warrant as well. But again, just just to kind of keep it on the base level, keep keeping the cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will. Sure. Um, if you need a reason to believe something, and one of my favorite arguments— is called The Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism. Sometimes it's also uh, used with the argument from reason, but um, there's a a debate I have on my YouTube channel, uh, which you can go to YouTube slash C slash Eric Hernandez, where I debated David Smalley. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments I used was called The Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism, like what I just talked about basically. And it kind of goes like this. If, first of all, let's suppose that, um, you wake up one day, and you look at the clock on the microwave, and that's what you always look to to find out what time it is. And the clock is blinking t- 12 o'clock. Now, you also notice that it's really hot in the room, and you see that there's water underneath your fridge. What would you assume happened?
0: That uh, If the water's on the fridge, the ice melted.
1: Mm-hmm. And, the, and the room's hot, and the microwave is blinking 12 o'clock. What would you assume caused these things? Can you say the beginning part again? You wake up one day, and let's say from a nap, and it's really hot in your room. There's water under the fridge, and the microwave is blinking twelve o'clock. Okay. What would you assume happened?
0: It's blinking
1: twelve o'clock. Well, uh, I mean, it's unplugged. Uh... Yeah, there's there was something something happened with electricity. There's a power outage. Let's say hey. right. So, is it the question? Is is it twelve o'clock?
0: Well, if it's blinking twelve o'clock, I associate that with with, you know, something gone wrong, you know, the power was out and then went back on again, kind of the default time. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't, I so wouldn't assume, gonna... I wouldn't assume it's 12 o'clock necessarily. No.
1: Sure. And here's the point. It could be 12 o'clock. Sure. But if we base our belief and what we use to justify that belief is what the microwave says, mm-hmm. we now have an undercutting default for any belief we have based on what the microwave is telling us because the power right. went out, which means that whenever you have something that you base your beliefs on or, or, or any kind of cognitive process that you base your beliefs on, if there is an undercutting defeater that gives you reason to not believe or to doubt or not just doubt, but rather that would undercut your rationality, then you can't move on to have knowledge because knowledge would require a belief to be true and will re- require some type of justification or warrant a reason for that. So, mm-hmm. in other words, I look at it Look at the microwave and it's blinking 12 o'clock. Now, it could be 12 o'clock. It really could, because as the saying goes, even a broken clock is wrong twice a day. But is it? Well, I don't know, because given that I know the power went out, I have a reason to suspect it's probably not, or I have a reason that undercuts my beliefs. Now, let's look at atheism. If atheism is true, the reason for which we have anything here in our bodies and our brains, the reason that we are the way we are today is because of natural selection, which is a mechanism that drives evolution and that selects for survival value, not truth value. Let me explain what that means. If uh, if a wolf, say this this, this pair of wolves have uh, offspring in the Arctic where it's really cold, some are born with short hair, some are born with long Given, nat- given natural selection, the short-haired ones are going to die out and die faster than long-haired ones. So eventually, at some point, you'll get only long-haired, thick-haired wolves because natural selection has selected what's best for survival value. So natural selection is simply looking for what, is, what has a survival value
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it could care less about truth value, meaning what is true or false. So with that quick nutshell, let me give this example. Suppose there's a car coming my way. And I think to myself, there's a car coming towards me. If I don't move out of the way, it's going to hit me and I'll die. Because I want to live, the best thing to do is jump out of the way. So I jump out of the way of the car. Let's say these beliefs produce this action and this action helped me survive. Natural selection is going to say, those are a good set of beliefs to pass on. That's a good behavior to pass on. We're going to, we're going to, that's going to help keep that species alive and, and going and allow it to propagate its DNA, and I'm speaking anthropomorphically here, of course. I'm speaking figurative about evolution. Now, here's the point, though. If all natural selection is looking for is survival value, not truth value, then your beliefs don't have to be true in order for you to survive. They just have to work. Mm-hmm. So, let's say, same scenario. car's coming towards me, and I think to myself, a car comes towards me, a car's coming towards me, but I'm Superman. If the car hits me, it's not going to kill me. However, I want to keep my identity hidden. So I'm going to jump out of the way so people think that I'm just a human being. I do that action, which was produced by these false beliefs. And guess what? Natural selection could care less whether or not your beliefs are true. They just Mm -hmm. care that they help you survive. And those beliefs will be passed on. That being said, when you look at everything that you have, your brain is a mechanism that was not designed to obtain truth. If anything, it was evolved given natural selection for survival value, not truth value, which means any belief that your brain produces is not aimed towards truth. It's aimed towards survival, which just like the microwave example, we now have an undercutting defeater that would give us, that would remove any justification to think that any beliefs we hold that are produced by our brain is true, Mm -hmm. which means if atheism is true, you shouldn't Trust any beliefs that your
0: brain produces, including right. the belief that atheism is true. We wouldn't have a justification. I mean, if knowledge is justified true belief on that view, we wouldn't have a justification for believing what we believe to be true.
1: Right. You would. You would have a reason to doubt anything that your brain, any belief your brain produces, including the belief that atheism is true. So, uh-huh. push further. If we assume that warrant is also needed for uh, um, knowledge, warrant has to do with a proper functioning cognitive faculties. Basically that, uh, to, to, to oversimplify it, that our brain was indeed, ha- it has a proper function and that we our souls, or our minds use our brain and there's a proper function to it. But a proper function um, would assume some type of teleology, a reason for which a proper function, proper function would essentially assume, and again, I'm, I'm going through it fast, would assume some type of design plan Because there's a goal so that you have the design plan that would assume a designer. Which means that if there is no God, you would have these undercutting defeaters given natural selection. And you would have no reason to believe, have a justification for any beliefs your brain produces. Mm -hmm. Which eventually, again, you can keep unpacking that. It would get to the point to where you can't have knowledge. But the irony here is that the atheist is willing to concede that we can't have knowledge. That's something that they would have to claim to know. Which means we can put it like this. If there is no God, knowledge... Can exist. I know that knowledge can exist. Therefore, I have knowledge. Therefore, God exists. Okay. So, if atheism is true, you can't have free will. You can't have rationality. You can't have more responsibility. You can't have consciousness, and you can't have knowledge.
0: And know, when you say, um, well, you know what? I won't ask that because then that would get us into a methodological issue. So, um, so, so, okay. So, this is uh, uh, people who are listening in can see how how deep we can go in in these kinds of things. Um, which, again, is sometimes necessary, I think, in being prepared to always give a reason. Um, it's kind of like, a, a, you know, a, what do you call those? Oh, my goodness, I'm getting like a, a brain fart. Um, a glacier, okay, a, a whose tip is just kind of slightly popping out the, the, the top of the water there. It looks very small, but when you dip your head underwater, you see there's this massive, you know, glatinous ice mass. I think apologetics is like that. We do need to be able to get up there and discuss things on the surface, but also, you know, reach down and go to some of the the heavier stuff. And I think um, it's difficult, but it takes practice and training and prayer and study to be able to navigate those two extremes of the surface area, kind of the common objections, and the more, I guess, the more scholarly and astute kind of objections that can be raised, things dealing with the soul and things like that. So I think that's important to kind of understand those two levels. Yeah,
1: and, and another thing, because again, I don't, I don't want to uh, scare anybody away, and that's often the, the, uh, the complaint some people might raise that, oh well, sure. that means you have to study or be a scholar. I, I'm technically not a scholar, mm-hmm. aiming towards that, but I'm, I'm not a scholar. But a lot of these arguments can be simple and put in a very simple way. So I, I remember John Lennox one time, uh, just, I mean, put the point beautifully where he's, he was talking to somebody, and they were, uh, who was a non-believer, and it was basically something to the effect that. Um, so how do you think your brain came about? And oh, through this, uh, um, blind, naturalistic, unguided process of evolution. Mm -hmm. And we use our brain to study science and blah, blah, blah. And he says, wait a minute. So your brain came from a non-rational blind, unguided process. Yes. And he says, and you believe it you trust it, (laughs) uh, you know, which is basically, um, it's, it's really making the point pretty simple that you have no reason to trust anything your brain produces. I make this illustration or analogy. If naturalistic evolution is true and no God was involved, then your brain was not designed to obtain truth. Because just like if I pick up a magic eight ball and I ask it, is it going to rain today? And I shake it and I turn it upside down and it says, yes. Does that mean it's going to rain? Well, no. Um, should I trust that it's going to rain? Not necessarily. Why? Because I know that the magic eight ball, is not something that was designed to obtain truth. It was designed for entertainment. Mm-hmm. So if naturalistic evolution is true and God does not exist, then your brain is nothing more than a glorified magic eight ball. The only difference I can think of is that if you turn the magic eight ball upside down at the bottom, it says made in China, which means it was created. If there's no
0: God, your brain wasn't even made
1: anywhere. It wasn't created at all. Mm. <laughs> so okay. at the of the eight ball has a creation and a design to it. The, the I,
0: think, I think what you did there when you uh – you allow someone to define their position, and then you hypothetically grant the truth of their position to show that their position is actually foolishness. It's irrational. Uh, in, in philosophy and logic, we call that what? A reductio ad absurdum, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a biblical principle. Just to point people, if we can kind of include the Bible in our discussion, Proverbs chapter 26, uh, verse 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be like him. And then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. And I think that's a very good two-step process of not thinking on the unbeliever's foundations, but then hypothetically assuming the unbeliever's foundations and their argument to show that it actually is is quite foolish, that it's uh, self-refuting. So I think that's a helpful tip to keep in mind if people are not so philosophically geared. Perhaps they're thinking, well, is there a scriptural principle that I can use uh, that kind of connects here. And I think that um, Proverbs chapter 26, 4 and 5 does that well. Um, all right, well, let's shift gears here. That, that's, I think that's really cool, and I think people should find that helpful. I, we kind of talked about a bunch of things there. Um, every time I talk about apologetics, um, I always use kind of the analogy of, you know, these. Uh, you're walking down the street and you see, uh, you know, on the left side and the right side, you see these, uh, you know, these different dojos. Where you have different schools of martial arts and different methods and things like that i grew up watching martial art movies uh every saturday morning i would wake up to the sound of terribly dubbed uh kung fu movies and my dad would be in his uh his night robe uh you know with a big cup of bustello coffee and in the other hand he got this big sandwich with butter and a banana right in the middle this weird (laughs) and and this was my childhood he's sitting Eating a sandwich, drinking coffee, watching martial arts movies, and what, what are they about? One dojo is stronger than the other dojo. One method is better than the other method. Um, it's kind of the same on the apologetic scene, isn't it? Where we have these different uh, apologetic methodologies. Why don't you go for us? Um, explain the different methodologies that are that are out there that are available to people, and then kind of just clarify what is your apologetic methodology and why do you uh, why do you hold to it?
1: Uh, yeah. So. Um uh, uh some people who may have uh, seen stuff i've done know that i did a, a discussion slash debate with site 10 over apologetic methodology mm-hmm. um, so i would be a, a presuppositional apologist and to be fair um, not everybody would agree to that even type of presuppositional apologetics or the, the way he uses that there's different even versions of presup um i've come to learn um, I, I would i would just to speak for what I... I I am what you call a classical apologist, and that's sometimes um, equated with evidential apologetics. uh, There's a slight difference. Um, We can go there if you want, but basically, as a classical apologist, when I read scripture that says, be ready to give an answer. When I read uh, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 4, 5, and 6, when it says that we should destroy these strongholds, and strongholds are defined as uh, uh, thoughts, beliefs, ideas, philosophies that go against the knowledge of God, that we're supposed to destroy those, refute those, then I see apologetics is giving people answers, defending what you believe, and being mm-hmm. able to refute and tear down the things that are keeping them from the knowledge of God. An example of a stronghold would be something like postmodernism or relativism, which is a view that there is no truth or there's no absolute truth. And I've had people who I've talked to and I share the gospel with them and and they say, well that's that's great. And you know I say, so so do you believe or, are you saying you believe? And they say, well, yeah, no, I, I believe that's true, that, that Christ really did that. And I say, great. You know, would you like to give your life to Christ, commit your life to Christ, or why don't you? And they say, oh, well, because I believe it's true for you, but not for me. I'm a Buddhist. I think all truth is relative. And like Gandhi said, everybody can go climb the mountain and start from a different point of the mountain, but everybody's reaching the peak. Now, of course, this view is is completely uh, backwards. In fact, I would even say, with regards to that analogy, you're going at the wrong mountain, buddy. Um, but <laughs> If truth is relative and there is no truth, then Christianity can't be true in the objective sense. So, this is a stronghold that these people have that are keeping them from coming to the knowledge of God. Um, Now, of course, there's lots of easy ways to refute that. Um, People who have studied apologetics for more than five minutes would know. You know, uh, apologists who have tackled that. You know, someone says there's no truth, and I say, well, is that true? Of course. Um, I I was on a radio show one time, and, and it was a secular radio show, and someone called in and said, well, you know. Um, I, I was with you until you said that uh, Christianity was the only true religion, and how can you say that? Uh, uh, you shouldn't tell people they're wrong, and, and because you know that that's not it's not right. They're, you know it's your truth, but not theirs, and it's it's you shouldn't tell people they're wrong because you you can't you can't do that. Basically, was rambling on. I said, well, let me let me ask you a question. I said, so you're telling me that it's wrong for me to tell other people or tell what other people that what they believe is false. It's wrong to do that. Yes. I said, so why are you calling me on public live radio? to tell me that I'm wrong when you just tell me it's wrong to tell people they're wrong. So it seems like you, you don't—it's not that you think it's wrong to tell people they're wrong. You just think it's wrong for me to say right. I'm right, which by default would mean someone else is
0: wrong. But that's just how truth
1: works, right? Yeah. So these are strongholds. I'm sorry?
0: Yeah, well, I was want to say well, we should hash that out because I think um, a lot of atheists, um, they think that's a word game, you know? Like this is just a word, a, you know, a word game that you're playing to kind of make me look silly. And it really isn't. It really is if, you know, uh, if you think it's wrong for me to, to say my perspective is right and other perspectives are wrong, you know, why is it, why is that not a word game? If you could kind of explain that for folks who think this is just, you know, this is just a cheap apologist trick where they kind of talking points that they use to kind of get out of uh, having to demonstrate their claims.
1: Oh uh, yeah well, um I, I would say that's just how logic works <laughs> uh, yep, something that's yep. self-defeating uh, means it 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 shoots itself in the foot it proves itself wrong when you apply the claim to itself, it proves itself wrong. So, for example, if I said, um I'm a noble i'm my brother is an only child mm-hmm. you say, well, wait a minute what do, what do you mean yeah my brother he's he's the only child my parents had obviously that's not true why because I'm his brother. And if I'm a brother, then by default, he's not the only uh, sibling or the only uh, a child my parents had. So when someone says these things, it sh- they're basically proving themselves wrong by the very thing they're trying to assert. Mm-hmm. If someone says there is no truth, they are assuming that what they're claiming is true itself. But if there is no truth, then the very claim there is no truth cannot be true. And if it's right. not true, why should I believe it? So the- these are things in classical apologetics you're you're not just giving reasons for what you believe, which the Bible commands us to. You're also tearing down the strongholds and, and refuting the reasons that people give against the things that you believe.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so there is the classical method. There is the, uh, the classical method tends to use a two-step approach, demonstrating the existence of God and then usually focusing in on the, uh, the Resur- of resurrection. Then you have the evidential approach, which, uh, to my knowledge, tends to focus on more of the historical uh, facts regarding uh, the resurrection and argument for miracles and things like that. I mean, um, well, well. So, as I understand it, um, it's really more more comes
1: down to uh, the epistemology. Where, as a classical apologist, I don't think you need arguments and evidences to believe in Christianity or God. I believe those are those can be properly basic beliefs. And those are beliefs that are not based on or founded on prior beliefs or arguments. For example, the belief that I exist is not a conclusion I came to by studying evidence or arguments or, or um, it's not based on a prior belief. I would say it's self-evident. And to begin to even try to prove these things or begin to try to work through these things, you have to first assume that, that you exist in the first place. To, to study whether or not I exist, I have to exist. Now – um, I believe that belief in God is properly basic in the sense that it need not be based on some prior belief or argument. Um, uh, it's often, sometimes it's called the witness of the Holy Spirit or census divinitatis, mm-hmm. which is what uh, Plantinga calls it. Um, but regardless of how you hash that out, I don't think you have to be a scholar or anything like that to believe in God. I think there's plenty of justified ways people come to know that God exists. Whereas the evidentialist, and again, I don't want to mischaracterize it and, an evidentialist evidentialists can speak for themselves, but as I understand it, um these things. Uh, I, I think
0: the evidentialist is underrepresented on the apologetic scene. <laughs> you got, you got the. Usually, people tend to think of classical and presuppositional, but but there's obviously other methodologies out there. You don't. I don't mean. I know. Um, if if I'm, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. If you know, but uh, Dr. Gary Habermas uh, would he, would he not identify himself as a as an evidentialist, not oh. necessarily a classicalist, or, or am I incorrect there?
1: I'm not sure because you know some people like even it it depends what they mean by that and you know how there's I mean just in philosophy there's so many there's you know a lot of terminologies overall just like theology you know there's a lot of terminologies so even Craig would say he's an evidentialist if by that you mean you know if you're talking about someone who uses evidence and arguments Um, but as I understand it the evidentialist would would might claim that um, one cannot believe something without any kind of justification or reasons. there there, are some other details there to unpack, but, I mean, it's, it's a slight caveat to where, for the most part, some evidentius are going to say that you can't believe in God without any type of arguments or evidences of that right. nature.
0: Now, um, okay, so we have classical apologetics. We have evidential apologetics. There's that reformed epistemology, which uh, I think Alvin Plantinga champions and, and he kind of talks about how belief in God can be properly basic and you don't need evidences for god in mm. order to be justified in belief in god correct
1: yeah and, and i would I would consider myself a reformed epistemologist i would say that that falls under that that can fall under the classical okay
0: so um all right so you are you are sympathetic towards um classical evidential rightly defined and a reformed epistemological yeah okay now, on the presuppositional camp, um, I'd be curious uh, what, to you, what differentiates the presuppositional method from those other methods, since it seems, um, uh, I mean, I know, I know what it is as a presuppositionalist, but I, I may, I'd be interested to see how you understand it. Because uh, as a presuppositionalist, I wouldn't be as sympathetic to those methods because it seems as though we're, we have a different kind of method in how we approach that whole thing, where I think classical and evidential can kind of meld in and out with one another. I'm not sure you can do that with a presuppositionalist approach. So what, what for you differentiates presuppositionalism, and why would you not consider yourself a presuppositionalist?
1: Well, um, again, depending on which, what kind of presuppositionalist you're talking about. Um, okay.
0: Let me clarify, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the differentiations, because uh, within the umbrella of presuppositionalism, you have people like Van Til. You have people who followed Van Til very closely, like Greg Bonson. Then you have people who are strongly sympathetic to Van Til, but veer off in different directions like Dr. Frame. And then you have people like Gordon Clark, uh, which is a very interesting kind of differentiation in the methods. So if I were to say the kind of the more popular version of presuppositionalism would be um, the Vantillian method. Um, so based upon what you understand about the Vantillian method, what what is objectionable to you, if there's anything, to that particular methodology of apologetics as opposed to the classical or evidential?
1: Well, um, so th- this is, something I, I would, let it, if you don't mind clarifying for me, mm-hmm. um, how would you describe that that one that you're asking me about? Like, how would you define it? So I don't don't mischaracterize anything. Sure,
0: I understand uh, presuppositional apologetics to be an apologetic methodology that flows out of Scripture in the sense that we don't believe that the Bible just teaches we should defend the faith. We believe that the Bible actually gives us a methodology for defending the faith. We also believe that in our methodology, we stand on the foundation as ultimate. The existence of the triune God and His Word. So, so we do not argue to God as a conclusion; we argue from God as a foundation. And um, in the interaction between the different methodologies, um, w- there seems to be kind of a disconnect in that in that dialogue. Whereas the classicalists, as we see from our perspective, they want to honor God in their method, but from the presuppositionalist perspective, we sometimes Recognize that yes, I know that's what you want to do But it seems as though you're starting from a different foundation than the sure foundation of God's revealed word um, that coupled with the idea that the presuppositional method is couched within a reformed understanding a reformed context so you can't you can't be a Presuppositionalist of Antillian while being an Arminian it would be uh it would be a kind of a contradictory notion since um, Van Til developed his apologetic methodology, presupposing a reformed understanding of theology, a doctrine of God, making the, creature, the creator-creature distinction and things like that. So there's a lot in, you know, involved in that. Um, but that's kind of somewhere along the lines, I, I would argue. From my perspective, I, presuppositionalists don't believe that you defend the faith in a piecemeal fashion. We defend the faith as a package, as the Christian worldview. So, um, Van Til rejected what he called blockhouse apologetics, where you build up the Christian worldview one block at a time. He understood it as kind of a whole package deal. So, we argue for the Christian worldview, not a generic concept of a God, and then work your way up to the the Christian God.
1: Okay. Um, So, yeah. So, I don't see how... um in other words, if we argue, for you you had to mention because it seems like well, let me let me ask this. So, are you saying it not just presupposes Christianity, it specifically presupposes Calvinism?
0: Um, I would say that the reformed understanding of the doctrine of God and the um uh, the biblical reformed, as we would understand it, anthropology, the effects of total depravity, um, all of that is taken into consideration from a reformed perspective when we engage the unbeliever. So for example, some people will engage in apologetics for the purpose of adding more information to an otherwise ignorant person. Whereas the presuppositionalist will engage in apologetics not to uh, add new information per se, although that's involved. I mean, we're gonna say things that they don't really know necessarily. But um, what we do in apologetics in the presuppositional perspective is that we acknowledge that all men have a knowledge of God such that they are without excuse. And so apologetics is not so much adding new information, although it includes that, it's more of an unmasking of the fact that the unbeliever knows uh, the God that has revealed himself um, in nature.
1: So would you say that the everybody not just knows about God, but knows that God is triune and that, and I don't mean it, I don't know how to say this, but knows that God is triune and knows that Calvinism is true?
0: No, I wouldn't connect those other ones uh, just off the top there. There would actually have to be some clarification there. But no, I don't think that everyone has a knowledge of the triune nature of God. Uh, for example, when you take a look at Romans chapter 1, um, let, me, let me turn there real quick. Um, so.
1: And and I asked while you're turning there, I asked because it says because it sounded like you said that's where one would start with the that as a foundation. But then it kind of seems like you'd have to argue to that, not necessarily start with that.
0: Well, when you argue, you presuppose standards, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so we would ask uh, in the discussion, the debate, and methodology, what are our standards? What what are the things we're what is it that we are standing on? Are we standing on the ability to reason up to God, or are we standing on something more foundational? The the, the presuppositionalists say we're standing on God's revelation first and foremost as our ultimate authority. And only within that context can everything else make sense. And that usually comes in various forms, but popularly understood, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Is uh, what a lot of presuppositionalists tend to do is they they use what's called the transcendental argument uh, for God's existence. And so um, uh, the argument goes something to the effect that you know the, the the proof that Christianity is true is that if it weren't true, you couldn't know anything at all. And so we ground all knowledge in in the the reality of the triune God.
1: Okay, so so as as we've we've kind of Touched on this before. That's making an ontological claim, and I would argue that's that's making an ontological claim, not an epistemological claim. In other words, um, sure, nothing could exist or be true if God did not exist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that when I give an argument, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That somehow I start with that epistemically.
0: Yeah, I, I I know I know the objection that presuppositionalists tend to conflate ontology with epistemology, and I, I'm not sure that that's um an accurate objection i think for me for me at least and how i understand these issues and and i mean i'd be great if another presuppositionalist would want to clarify this but i I, um not ontology over here and epistemology over here they kind of have a feedback loop relationship that one presupposes the other the other presupposes the other so my epistemology doesn't make sense unless reality is a certain way and i can't say reality is a certain way without knowing it's that way which points back to epistemology. So for me, they're, I hold them together, not necessarily, okay, here's this and then here's this. Does that make sense? Um,
1: I'm trying to make sense of it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to grasp it because uh, I'm trying to be careful not to mischaracterize anything.
0: Sure, sure, sure.
1: Because like we've talked before, um, in other words, you, so you say that you start with God.
0: How do I not start with God? Well well that that's the thing. I think that I think that classicalists start with God in principle, but the practice of the apologetics that flows from that appears to us inconsistent. So for example, um, you know, without without the triune God, you can't have knowledge, we would argue. And then we begin to argue as though the unbeliever can have knowledge independent of the triune God you see what i'm saying now not now not everyone would say yeah that's precisely what i do but that seems to be an inconsistency that's seen when people say hey i think god is my starting point but then they argue in ways that don't seem to be consistent as though there are other standards that are more ultimate than than god himself perhaps human reason or or my own existence or or whatever the case may be
1: yeah and i'm I'm still unclear on how that would look because let's say if i asked you because a, a few things so i i don't think i've ever done that uh, um uh, what you're saying i'm not saying you're, you're accusing me of that but sure. um in other words i'm perfectly fine with talking to a non-believer and walking through their method or epistemology with them and asking questions along the way i'm perfectly mm-hmm. fine with that me too um, but like say if you had a math test, and, the, and there's only one question, it was 2 plus 2 equals, your answer is 4, and you don't ever need to start or mention God, or start with God in any way to pass a test.
0: I don't say you start with God to pass the test. I would say without God, you couldn't make sense out of the test you're taking. So we, I push it back. So in principle, yeah, we can talk about math and stuff like that, but I'm arguing that all of that stuff makes sense only within the context of the triune God.
1: Right, and that's where I'm saying that's an ontological claim, but that has nothing I would argue it has nothing to do with whether or not someone can know this.
0: Well, well, well here's here, here I guess is the distinction when when we engage in presuppositional apologetics, we assume that there is a sufficient knowledge of God of the unbeliever that he's suppressing. And so the method tries to draw out that suppression. Would you agree with that? Um yeah, I
1: I, I for your, for your definition of presup, I yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, presuppositional apologetics includes more than that. It's, right. really, and it, yep. it's really an issue because you said something to the effect that some people claim that you are a presuppositionalist, but then you say, well, I'm just doing good philosophy. You know? And I, I, I agree with that. Good philosophy m- is done when you consider presuppositions. But what is our ultimate presupposition? What is our ultimate standard? That's 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 the issue. So um, uh, we take and I'm not saying classical apologists don't, but we take very seriously those statements in scripture, which tell us that, you know, all men know that God exists such that they are without excuse. And so when we engage in apologetics, we don't cast that fact aside. We try to bring that out in the discussion. And uh, mm-hmm. you'll you'll also hear this idea of um, within the presuppositional method that there is no neutrality, um, you know, and and I don't think any classicalists will walk around saying, yes, let's be neutral. But in practice, in the way the method plays out, it can sometimes come across that way. You know, let's not assume the Bible. Let's assume, you know, let's follow the evidence where it goes as though we can be neutral uh, investigators and just follow the evidence where it goes. As though the suppression of sin doesn't warp man's ability to do that because he's he actually has an axe to grind against the God of Scripture.
1: So, um. So it's, it's about, so there's a few things that were down. So it's about starting with the belief that God is foundational.
0: Well, that no, well, that, that God is foundational. Because belief is, is, I mean, I would argue that whether one believes that or not, God exists. He's a necessary precondition for intelligibility. So one doesn't have to start with that belief. Uh, if they don't start with that, then I would argue that they couldn't have a genuine knowledge of anything. Um, and I would point out the fact that what you pointed out before, and that's actually why I kind of asked the question before, that if atheism is true, for example, knowledge is impossible. But we clearly know that atheists do know things, right? Would you agree? Atheists do know things, right? Yes. But if their perspective is true, they wouldn't. And so what I'm saying from my perspective is that if, you know, if, if uh the, the reason why the god of the bible is is real is that if he weren't you couldn't have knowledge but you do have knowledge so that demonstrates my point of course we'd have to flesh that out in more discussion yeah.
1: but and that's what i'm saying that's that's an ontological claim it's an ontological that's an argument from ontology no. it's not an ep- epistemic claim because it it because basically if you don't have to start with the belief in a triune God in order to have knowledge, then it follows that belief in a triune God is not necessary for knowledge. But that's not it the same thing. The existence thing.
0: of God. Is right. Which forgot. is ontology. Right. Yeah. But, but then again, ontology is mixed in with the epistemological issue because my claim also is that this person knows the God I'm speaking of.
1: Right. But that's irrelevant to the, I would he, say that's irrelevant to the argument that you don't have to believe in a triune God to know. That two plus two equals four. But the triune God must exist necessarily in order to, for anything at all to be possible.
0: That's right. And in my methodology, I point that out that unless you start with my God, you couldn't even know two plus two equals four. What do you mean he by He does know that two plus two equals four, but not because his worldview is true.
1: But so what do you mean by start though? Um, you mean epistemically with the starting with that belief?
0: I would say if you don't believe in the metaphysical claim, then you have no justification for any epistemological claims that he makes. And, and yeah, and you can argue that way. I'm just saying that that. But wouldn't you wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, you said if God not, this was a question that I wanted to ask before. as you said something very interesting. You said um, if God does not exist, then there's no free will. Mm-hmm. And the, I, my question that popped in my head, and I didn't ask it before. I should have, but I didn't want to get off track because then it would bring us to this part of the discussion much earlier, <laughs> which wouldn't have made sense. Um, is what God were you talking about? That if God doesn't exist, there's no free will. You mm-hmm. use the word God, but in mm-hmm. that argument, you used what God are you talking about? Are you saying just the concept of God is necessary for there to be libertarian free will, or were you assuming a particular God with? specific content Well,
1: of course the, the God that I'm arguing for the God, the Christian God the triune God You're right uh, uh, and more specifically with this would be a God who in other words a design a, a God who's a designer uh, uh, that has teleology that has created things for purposes because if there is no God
0: yes. uh,
1: uh, then there are no such thing as as objective purposes nothing happens for the sake of an end it just happens randomly by chance so if there is any type of teleology, and by that, that means any type of reason for which purpose, goal, anything that's oriented towards an end, then that assumes an overarching overall design or plan to the way life should and shouldn't be. So then you get should and should not, ought, mm-hmm. uh, and there's not just ises. So I'm pointing to a God who would be the reason for which there are things that have purposes within them intrinsically.
0: Is that the triune God, or are you saying what's sufficient to make your argument go through is a generic God that fulfills that requirement of design? So, uh, obviously, I think
1: it is the triune God, the Christian God. Um, But if someone wanted to say, well, at this point, it could be a God that fits that description, I would say, yeah, but any God that fits that description will not exclude the God that I believe in. So
0: Right, but there are other possibilities uh, in your perspective. With that argument alone, yes, with using just that argument. Okay. Would you think, let me ask this question, I suppose. Do you think the existence of the triune God is necessarily true? Yes. Necessarily. That's right. Do you believe that God is, the triune God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility? Yes. Yes. And so there can't be any intelligibility unless the triune God exists.
1: Yes, there can't be anything at all unless God exists. The triune God. Yes, the triune God. But even then, if I can pause here, we can all say, well, which triune God, because some people believe in a triune God that is timeless, some people believe in a triune God that's
0: Triune God of Scripture.
1: Temporal. Well, right. Well, that's that's kind of the thing, though is that there's people who have different uh, believers who are brothers in christ who have different perceptions of what properties god has of course so so someone could say well the triune god that's timeless and someone else says "Well, no, the triune god who's in time well which one of these two triune gods are you assuming
0: so that's where i say what do you mean which one of the triune gods i guess they'd be referring to the same god but disagreeing on a particular attribute
1: right and right exactly so with my argument Yes, it's going to be a God that has to at least fit these, but that. But someone can say, well, what, well it could be this, this, or this. Well, sure, but that's something we can come to after the fact. And in my mind, I'm going to argue eventually that, yes, it is a triune God, but that itself doesn't get you a triune God. Although in my mind, yes, that is what I'm arguing for because I believe that without the triune Christian God, nothing at all would be possible. But right. we're going there step by step,
0: just like you as – you should, uh, I should have you repeat that again because that, that was good uh, when you said, uh, you know, is the triune God the necessary preconditions of intelligibility? I think all of the, the pre-supper guys that, that kind of get on your back would appreciate that you say that because um, a lot of people won't say it, won't admit it that way. They kind of have, there's this area of, you know, I believe in the triune God, but I, I can see that if he doesn't exist, you know, we can still have knowledge. Some people concede that, and I, uh, but I'm glad you didn't. You didn't concede that, so because um, you sound very presuppositional in a lot of in, in a lot of regards. I what this is what I find w- was very interesting. That if you read the the books, the uh, was it four or five views on apologetics.
1: No, I counterpoint,
0: I are you familiar with that?
1: Uh, I'm f- I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with what you're talking about.
0: Oh, okay, because because a lot of the diff- different methodologies end up uh, agreeing with one another a lot. Um, uh, cause you said something to the effect before that you're very sympathetic towards these other views, but you're not a presuppositionalist, but in fact, there is a lot that we can glean from all the other methodologies, right? Would you agree? Um, some of
1: them, <laughs> but I yeah. think a good part from the other methodologies are going to be something that, that. My methodology should do in the first place. I, I kind of use this example: if you pray three times a day facing Jerusalem or whatever the case is, I'm not going to say you're being you're you're doing good Muslim practices. I'm saying you're doing good religious practices. It just so happens that the Muslims have been a champion of this particular practice. So I would say anything that's going to be beneficial is not going to be exclusive to one particular uh, method. Sure, it's just going to be either good philosophy or good dialogue or good critical thinking. Um, sure. Now, when I say the—now, uh, uh, any other classical apologists have to speak for themselves, but—so one of the arguments I like to use, which probably would have been a simpler argument than the whole soul stuff we're getting into, but, you know, that just kind of <laughs> <floored me laughs> okay. kind of went, went really fast. Because, you know, we've—I've talked with you before. We've talked about the moral argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, which are much simpler um, that you could use. And, again, I just use the consciousness stuff because that's, that's where I like to take the conversations.
0: At, sure, like. sure. Okay. That's your, that's your wheelhouse. That's your area.
1: Right, because I don't want some because there's a lot of there are a lot of apologists who probably don't even know what I'm talking about, and that's fine because that's just not where they where they tend to uh, uh, study or shine. And not saying I shine, but I'm yellow right now. So there's you are shining right um, now, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and now I lost my train of thought. Um, right, okay. So the argument from contingency, I would argue that. Um, That there has to be something necessary, and then, of course, I'm going to argue it's God. And then knowing that Christianity is true, it's it's a cumulative case. Based on everything that I know, I know it's the Christian Triune God. These are ontological claims, and if the Christian God did not exist, then nothing would exist because he would be the necessary thing for anything and everything at all to be possible— so, yes, I would have to argue that God is not just, in other words, I, I put it this strongly. It's not just that God happens to exist. It's that God's non-existence would be logically impossible. It is logically impossible for God not to exist because he is logically necessary, metaphysically necessary. He He is the thing which cannot cease or fail to exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that being said, then that would apply to any and everything you want to ask. You know, well, if... if The triune, and I say triune because obviously I'm a Christian. The triune God did not exist, then could it be possible for this, you know, this, no. Okay, this, this, no. Whatever you ask is going to be no. Um, Now, epistemically speaking, I'm perfectly fine with someone saying, okay, but you haven't proved this God. And I say, yeah, that's fair. But we're taking it step by step because I would even argue that even biblically speaking, there's probably most of the people in the Old Testament did not believe in a triune God. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And there was progressive revelation. So if the Bible can take you know, thousands of years to get to, you know, revealing this stuff, I don't see why I can't take 20 or 30 minutes to an hour to eventually get to revealing the God that I believe in being triune. Sure, sure, sure.
0: Now, um, if someone were to ask you, and and other apologists have been asked this as well, I guess I'd be curious what you would say. If someone were to say, um, are you, um, is it possible for you to be wrong about the God of the Bible? What would you say in light of you mean, you said he's logically necessary. Would you would you kind of say, no, it's not possible for me to be wrong that the triune God exists?
1: Um, well, it, it depends what kind of possibility they're talking about. If God yeah. is metaphysically necessary, then no, it's not possible. Uh, is it possible for me to uh, make mistakes in my reasoning in the conclusion that I came to the triune God? Then yes. Um, uh, now, if someone's asking about strictly a uh, strict possibility, which is to say there is no logical contradiction in the thing I'm saying, then sure. Um, in other words, if someone said the prime minister is a prime number, there is no strict logical contradiction in that. Mm-hmm. So it's technically logically possible, but when we look at the metaphysics, no, a prime number cannot be a prime minister, then it becomes metaphysically impossible. So to say something's logically possible is not to concede that one believes that it's, act- it's actualizable, it's mm-hmm. simple to concede that there's no contradiction within saying these two words. Like a married bachelor, that's a logical contradiction. A prime m- number being a prime minister is not a face value contradiction. But when you begin to unpack what these things are, then no, they can't be the same thing or one can't be the other. Then it becomes metaphysically impossible. And mm-hmm. then you can say uh, after the fact, oh, and turns out if it's metaphysically possible, then it's, it's, it's broadly logically impossible as well. What do you mean broadly, logically impossible? And uh, hopefully I use that the right way. Uh, in other words, it's given other f- – uh, after the fact, we find out, oh, that's actually impossible. Um, so again, face value, prime n- minister as a prime number is not logically impossible because there's no contradiction. But once I understand what these things are, oh, then it, they actually were impossible, but that's only because given what I now understand about it.
0: Okay. All right. I got what you're saying there. All right. You're, yeah, you're really glowing. <laughs> that's awesome. All
1: the more right. More we do, the more it glows, I guess.
0: All right. So so let's shift more to um, back to kind of these practical issues here. And then we can kind of um, wrap things up in a few moments. Um, I'm just going to shoot some questions at you, if that's okay. Um, some more common objections. And maybe, you know, as we're closing here, this can kind of give um, some people a little bit more to put in their arsenal when they confront these kinds of things. Okay. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, okay. I muted it because I was moving some stuff. All right. So how would we respond to the accusation that we can't trust the Bible as a historically accurate document? Um,
1: well, uh, like I said, usually it depends on the conversation. I, tr- I try to get more to God and Christianity, but um, I, I would either point them to a lot of sources. Uh, I'd give them the near number so they can talk to. Um, okay. uh, point to people who have shined in these areas, but uh, but in, in, a, in a nutshell – um usually tend to point to things like uh, prof- fulfilled prophecy or showing how the things that are claimed in the Bible, uh, uh, you ha- are over so many thousands of years with over forty different authors, and there's consistency here. Um, we find that there are things that could not have been known um, uh, going back to the prophecy issues or the 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 confirmation with history. With archaeology, that there's plenty of reasons to believe. Uh, there's even uh, so Lydia McGrew came out with the book called Undesigned Coincidences, which is
0: really powerful that shows Lydia, Lydia McGrew, That's Tim McGrew's wife. Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, undesigned coincidences, which show things that there's a lot of uh, uh, unintended collaboration between things like the Gospels. Mm-hmm. That reading it at face value, you're not going to catch it unless you kind of look at this gospel and say, why did they say this? And You look at this gospel and say, oh, wait, why did they say that? And you put them together and you think, oh, my goodness, that's why. So, for example, um, in one of the – and again, it, the, the book goes into much deeper, and, and I haven't – I'm going to have to get a hold of that so I can give give better examples, and there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. Um, in one gospel, it says uh, you know, they're hitting him, and they say, why uh, – tell me who hit you. And then, if you're, you know, if you if you're a prophet, tell me who hit you, and you're like, well, that's a weird thing to ask. But then you find in another gospel it says that they, they did when they did that he was blindfolded. Oh well, that's probably why they asked him that. So you have these two authors who weren't necessarily like sitting by each other saying, hey, what do you want to do? What do you want to write? You know, they were written uh, by different people, at different times, possibly talking to different people, different witnesses, and they're just including what they know or what they heard uh, from a, a, a firsthand testimony, and they're not trying to make that collaboration happen but when you step back and look what's being said you find that there's reasons to believe what's being said um uh, and that she calls it undesigned coincidences you have uh things like when you look at how historians do history with with ancient texts uh, one of my favorites is something like the criteria of embarrassment if Mm. someone's trying to make something up they're not going to use things that are going to make them look bad if i'm trying to make up a story about how great of a person i am I'm not going to say something that's going to make me look bad. So let's say I'm trying to impress everybody, um, by saying, you know, Hey, I went to go visit, you know, Hey, I went to go visit William Lane Craig and I'm trying to make this up, let's say. And he was giving me all these compliments and he said how great of an apologist I was and, and this or that. And, and I, I just start trying to make myself look good by making up the story. And then I say, uh, uh, but, but, uh, but he did say that, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I didn't know what I was talking about because he actually learned that everything I said was was uh, uh, plagiarized. And I just was really just quoting from his book or reading from his book out loud without showing people that on my pulpit I actually had his book out. And, you know, that was very disingenuous and dishonest of me. I'm, I'm going to leave that. Po- I'm not going to say that because it's going to make me look bad. It's counterproductive to what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. When you look at scripture, I mean, there's a lot to that. But, okay, you find things like Peter. Christ calls him Satan. If right. you're trying to make yourself look good, and you're trying to make yourself look good by showing how much Christ liked you, you're not going to say that He called you Satan,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> because it's going to be counter and uh, productive to what you're trying to do. But if you so, if you include that, historians are likely to say, you know, that's probably true because if they're making it up, they're not going to invent something that makes them look bad. We know right. this because even with the pharaohs, they you wouldn't you're not going to find anything negative written about the pharaohs. Because you would be killed because they don't want anything embarrassing written about them. Um, there's a lot of little examples like that. Um, little if,
0: indicators that point to the genuineness of particular portions of the scripture. Absolutely right. Even in have, those important areas like the women finding the empty tomb, given the social status of women, that would not have really helped their case if they were trying to make their story believable, things like that.
1: Right. And uh, and then, of course, the number of manuscripts we have are, are I mean, it's just uh, I think Gary Havermas called it an embarrassment of riches of how hmm. much we have uh, versus other uh, ancient texts that we have reasons to believe. OK, yeah, this is what they said. And then when you look at Christianity, it's like it's like over a mile high of just of just manuscripts we have to go off of. And there's a lot of a lot to just showing the validity of this stuff of like, wow, it's it's. When you actually study this stuff, because most people who make these claims, and this is why I go back to what I said earlier, I like to ask them why they believe that, because it's like, okay, so who have you studied? How many books have you read? Uh, so when talking about the soul. So said, so well, there's just no condition at all. I said, oh, "Okay, well and I said, well knowing that you're someone who is educated and you're someone who is not going to believe something unless you've looked at the evidence for yourself." And they're like, "Yeah." I said, "Okay." And I took out my pen and I kind of clicked it and I said, uh, give me the 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 top 3 books you read on the existence of the soul and who are the authors?" Because apparently it's no good definition. And then they say, "Well, I, well you know, I, well, I've seen." Uh, okay, so you haven't read. Okay, that that's, that's fine. Maybe you just misspoke." I said, "Um so you said there's no good definition." I said, "Give me the top 3 definitions and who are the ones that gave them and why do you disagree with these definitions?" In other words, he had nothing. So right. uh, it's it's really a bluff. So when people are saying oh, there's no good reason to believe this I say, why not? Because it was written by men. Okay, so if you wrote that statement in a book, I, I should no longer believe it because you wrote it? Right. No, of course not. So, yeah, it, it really, it's it, there's a lot of bluffing going on.
0: And and admittedly, for both sides. Bluffing, that's that's for sure. I, one guy said he was, uh, there's, no, there's no good arguments for God's existence. I'm like, so if you studied the arguments, you have responses for them. So, you know, and I always ask, you know, and I... I'm, I'm very unlike a lot of presuppositionalists. I, I actually do, in certain contexts, use the cosmological argument. And I, I've asked people, because I believe the argument's valid. Um, I ask people, so so give me a demonstration of the falsity of, of the, the first premise, that whatever begins to exist as a cause. You know, give me a counterexample to that. Um, most people, I'd say, they don't even know what the cosmological argument is. Mm-hmm. So you have this common mantra that there's no arguments, there's no evidence, but then when you push and prod, um many people haven't even taken the time to look at, into what's actually there so absolutely yeah
1: yeah absolutely. yeah
0: um what about uh, we'll do we'll do two more questions and then and then we'll we'll wrap it up here is that okay sure okay um uh what by, about by the way real fast because we're
1: talking about the mantra and the bluffing um i, I just posted on my facebook not so long ago that um so i'm in the process of writing the book and, and pray for me because i want to get started back to writing it there's when i started writing it within like uh within this past year alone we had Harvey. I had a uh, uh, I had a son, and then we moved cities, and of course houses and stuff. We moved twice within year. So a lot happened. I want to get back to writing, but um, in, in one of my YouTube comments, this atheist was saying he he, he was lying. It was so obvious that he was lying that it kind of made you question anything else he said before that. And he said uh, Eric is a charlatan or something, whatever. You know, he
0: a well known guy or
1: no, no, no. This is just someone in the YouTube comments. Okay, okay, you, you know how that is. Um, YouTube is a fun world. Uh, And he was saying something like, uh, and I'm wondering if you'd watch this video, uh, saying something like, Eric's a charlatan. He was caught in over 50 different fallacies, something, something. And then his next sentence said, and I just read his book, and it's complete nonsense from cover to cover. He starts with this and doesn't ever even explain it. He just uses this magical if. Well, what was shocking to me is he read my book cover to cover, and it was nonsense. I haven't even finished writing the book, much less published it. So wow. I responded in comment. I said, this is exciting to hear that you read my book. Could you please send me a copy because I haven't finished it. And I'd love to to know how it ends, you know, because it, it would really help me finish the thing along. In other words, not only was there bluffing, there was blatant lies.
0: And what's incredible I was is taking you for someone has done this, by the way. They've mistaken you for Sonny Hernandez, who has <laughs> written the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, no. that guy that for the free will debate, they're like, nope, that's a different Hernandez. Yeah, for
1: some Yeah, that's not the first time that's, but I, I don't think Sonny goes into the argument from consciousness and how a uh, mind, uh, uh, okay. you know, okay. from matter. But, you know, hey, maybe I'm wrong. I haven't read his book either. But, um, it, it was, if, if he had watched the, the, what it was on, it was on a debate with me and, uh, David Smalley. And he, he even, he's responding to the, uh, uh title that says eric hernandez um but either way so he he's saying he read it and then and when i even pointed that out to him he said oh well he was talking about uh, my cds and, and i'm like oh i didn't know cds were books and, and which you know so in other words he was book on tape <laughs> he to, right
0: he has to maintain his integrity
1: so so he could have in, in other words if it were the, if that were the case that you're saying he could have said that but no he just doubled down on it um mm-hmm. so not it was just blatant lying what's even crazier is when i shared the picture I, of course i blurted out his uh his his Nay, his full name. Although his part of his name was um, uh, consistent standards or something like that, which I thought was very ironic. Yes. Uh, there were some atheists saying, "Well, is he wrong? Is he wrong?" I'm like, "Are you really trying to defend this guy, who's blatantly lying?" And rather than you know being objective and being like, "Yeah, he shouldn't have done that or said that," you're going to try and defend him. But anyway, so yeah, lots of bluffing, uh, sometimes lying, unfortunately, and and neither side should do that.
0: Right. Okay. Um, what about the claim that the Bible? Um, and science don't mesh well. I mean, the Bible mentions, you know, four corners of the earth. Uh, it has it has a very uh, primitive cosmology. And so how can you derive scientific truth from the Bible? Or even if you're not trying to do that, the Bible just seems to have an incorrect view of the cosmos, even though there's some elements there that, okay, I see how that makes sense. But you know, what's up with the four corners of the earth, these kinds of things. How would you respond to you know, that idea that the Bible has kind of bogus, uh, descriptions of, of the universe. And so there's really not a book that can be trusted.
1: Um, yeah, well, it depends again. I'd always, I always ask the person, you know, give me an example. What do you mean by that? Um, but one thing is, well, first, okay, the Bible is not a scientific book. So to say the Bible and, uh, however you put it, let's say the Bible and science don't go together or something. I would say, well, it's kind of like, to me, it's like saying, well, arithmetic and the Bible don't go together or geometry and the Bible, you know, it's, the Bible is not intending to teach science, and I, when I asked for I, the reason, I ask for examples, is because, like you said, you know, four corners of the Earth, they're going to point to things that they have no idea what they're talking about, nor the, do they understand context. Um, mm-hmm. I heard Aaron Raw just the other day debating um, uh, Tyler Vela, who I think did a great job, by the way. Uh, and Tyler, someone you know, I even disagree with some stuff he does. But
0: who, who is this? What was this discussion?
1: Tyler Vela had a debate um, with Aaron Raw. Um, okay. I think this very question about science and faith uh, and I encourage people to go to go look at
0: that. And you said Tyler did a great job.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh part of the mentionables conference and a um, uh, free, free shout out for you guys uh, the, and I'm not being paid to say that. Um uh no, he did and Aaron, so he brought up the portion where Christ was saying something like uh what goes into a man doesn't defile him it's what come out what comes out. And he and <laughs> And I laughed when I heard this objection, Aaron saying, well, that's not true because if I drink battery acid, that can that can mess me up. That's not scientifically accurate. <laughs> and I thought to myself, does this guy seriously think Christ is trying to teach nutrition in, in what he said? <laughs> that, that, that was his big objection. Well,
0: that, well, have you ever heard Aaron Ra's interaction with Matt Slick? Where uh, Matt, I, don't, I don't know. Matt asked Aaron, is God transcendent? And Aaron said, well, it depends. What is he transcending? <laughs> and Matt was like, what? <laughs> I don't think he understands Christian theology very well.
1: Yeah, there's, I mean, he's, from what I hear, he's good at science, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's what he does is philosophy when he starts attacking things like scripture or theology or context. So it's, it's, it's like one of those things that it's so sad it's an objection. But uh, so, in other words, going back to the context issue, when okay, Jesus said, you know, when Jesus said, "I am the door," no one's going to say, "Oh, look, he was wrong. He doesn't understand biology because doors are made of wood, and he's clearly not made of wood." As absurd as that sounds, that's the equivalent of ninety-nine point nine percent of the objections I I hear when it says the Bible is not compatible with science or something like that. One, the Bible's not trying to teach science. Mm-hmm. Two, virtually any example you give me is going to be you either not understanding the principle of what's being said or the context. Uh, and you're you're falling to understand. It's not a a is we're we're not teaching botany here. It's not teaching cosmology here. Um, now there are implications drawn from scripture that we can look at. Um, like for example, in the beginning, in the beginning of what? Well, that's the, I mean, you got the Kalam right there uh, where a lot of atheists were fighting and pushing against um, the beginning of the universe. And I believe it was Charles Maddox who was he himself said that he did not want to give in to the idea that the universe had a beginning. And one of his main reasons was because he felt it gave too much credibility to the creationists because the creationists are claiming the universe had a beginning, and we don't want to give them that leverage. In other words, it had nothing to do with science. It had to do with with, uh, uh, him just refusing, suppressing the truth, if you will, uh, uh, of what Scripture was teaching, that the universe had a beginning. Now, someone might point to something like, oh, well, the sun stood still. Um, you also have to understand that there's also phenomenological language written in Scripture where someone is speaking from their perspective. So when I say, or the news that says the sun rose today, we all know that the sun doesn't move, but it's um, we're speaking from our perspective. That's perfectly fine if people in the Bible are speaking from their perspective, but understand they're not trying to teach cosmology. They're right. describing what they see. When you understand what Scripture is doing, which takes some learning, uh, you know, people think you can just... Well, well, I can just pick a Bible, pull out of context, and say what I want about it. Believe it or not, it, it you cannot be intellectually lazy and be a Christian. That yeah. is unbiblical. The greatest commandment includes loving God with your mind. These are things you have to uh, uh, work through and wrestle with. Um, so if someone's going to critique, I, I don't mind people critiquing my position, nor do I mind them critiquing the Bible, but I just ask at least understand my position or what bi- the Bible is saying before you critique it. Otherwise, you're going to look really silly like Aaron Raw did in the debate with Tyler Vela.
0: Yeah, I got to check it out. I actually like Tyler's stuff. He's got some good stuff. I haven't really followed him too closely, but from what I have seen, um, I think he's a pretty sharp guy. Um, all right. Um, what are some uh, – and this is kind of the final question. What are some study tips you can give to people who are interested in perhaps um, kind of getting into apologetics? Where should they start? Um, what are some books out there, some helpful websites? Why don't you, you uh, kind of point people in, a, in the direction of some good resources?
1: Um, yeah, well, um, so, some of the top apologists would be people like William Lane Craig. Uh, he has a podcast. I mean, everybody has time to listen to podcasts, and by that, I mean I mean you can do it while you're driving. Sure. Um, uh, William Lane Craig's podcast is great. Um, and then, uh, I mean, you and I have YouTube channels they can look at videos at. Um Anything from, uh, and depending on, of course, what what methodology of apologetics you like. There's different podcasts for those as well. But I'd say a good place to start would be, let's say, someone like Willem and Chris podcast, where he has an entire uh, uh, where he goes through uh, uh, um, uh, current events or things like that. And then he has, which you and I have agreed with, is 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 a great uh, almost like a systematic where he goes through all the major doctrines within Christianity. He has an entire a series that takes like three years to go through uh, in his yeah. podcast. You can, of course, listen to him.
0: The, the Defenders. By the way, again, you don't have to agree with everyone to find value. <laughs> yeah. I am Reformed. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a presuppositionalist. And I've learned a lot listening to Dr. Craig's Defenders class. I love the format where they have the Q&A and things like that. Um, so that's definitely a great resource. Uh, what What else? What, what, what are some books that you think um, would be helpful?
1: Uh, one of the first books I read was uh, Frank Turk's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I okay. found that very, very helpful, um, even if it's just something to point you in the right direction to get you thinking. Excuse me. And uh, in fact, that's the first book I bought for my wife uh, when we first met. Um, uh, we, uh, she she asked what I did, and I told her about apologetics. I said like, "What's that?" And I'm like, "Well, I'll get you a book." You know, so I kind of I kind of like the fact that the first thing I didn't buy her, the first thing I bought her was not flowers or drink. It was a uh, you know book on apologetics. <laughs> all
0: right,
1: all right. Awesome. <laughs> um, and she read it until we got married. She stopped reading it. So uh, I, take, <laughs> I, don't, I don't interpret the facts; I just report them. Um, right, right. Uh, but uh, Frank Turk's book was really helpful. Uh, William and Craig has a book on guards, really helpful. Um, I'm in the process of writing one, but anything that you can find that. In other words, if you don't know where to start, start somewhere, and mm-hmm. that'll point you in the direction of, of where – a good idea for where to go from there. Greg Kouklos' book, Tactics, is, is, I think, a must for anybody. Um, a lot of stuff he talks about. You want to get deeper. One of my personal favorite books, uh, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. Okay. It goes through the major areas of philosophy uh, and how we – just basically critical thinking, how to, learning how to think, how to think through issues. And I like what you said. We don't have to agree with everything that we're reading or learning from because the more you learn, the more you come to your own position and learn how to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Um, I love that someone like yourself and myself who disagree on a lot of, or I don't want to say a lot, but some significant perhaps issues, um, but we can still work together for the kingdom. Uh, and that that's what I love to do is, you know, it's like, hey, I'm going to heaven, you're going to heaven. Hey, that guy over there, He's not saved. Let's go talk to him and let's talk to each other about how we can better do this stuff. And, and there's place for, you know, disagreement, of course, but anywhere you'll find what you, you'll find something that just sparks your interest. Once you find that in particular, then you can really point more uh, narrow, be more narrow in your approach and what you're looking into, whether that's uh, history on the resurrection, uh, the soul, cosmology, science, uh, things of that nature.
0: And I don't, and I don't want to one up you because it'll sound like I'm trying to one up you. But um, one of the most helpful books would be the Bible itself, and I know you would agree with that. Um, yes. Because I asked specifically books on apologetics, you know. But the Bible, of course, we're defending the Bible, and so being familiar with, um, you know, what the Bible says is really the the best place you can start if you're not into all of that other philosophical issue. But of course, I think those are important as well. Um, but knowing the scriptures. Again, most people you're going to talk to, uh, it depends on your context. They may be atheists. They may come from a religious perspective or some kind of, you know, um, uh, cult that kind of piggybacks or apes Christianity. It's really important to know what you believe so that you can defend it more clearly. Um, But, of course, other books as well are are very helpful. Um, If if anyone is interested in presuppositional apologetics, um, you would find um, Presuppositional Apologetics by Greg Bonson, Always Ready. Um, by Greg Bonson, um, some of Van Til's work. You can find those on on uh, on Amazon. And I'm not sure if you've read um, Eric any presuppositional uh, books. Perhaps the books will explain it much better than I have. I my brain is like jelly right now. Um, uh, although I find this super interesting, I feel so <laughs> exhausted right now. <laughs> so um, if I haven't explained my position uh, clearly at all, um, you should check out those books. Whether you agree with it or not, they'd be super helpful. Um, Bonson, uh, of course. It has some really good stuff too. So, um, a lot of resources out there, um, guys. If you like these um, videos, I'm gonna try to get. I think I have Dr. Kirk McGregor coming on. Uh, uh, I think it's next. Uh, I think it's this upcoming Monday, if if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. We're gonna be talking about um, his his books. Um, one on Luis de Molina. If anyone's interested in Molinism, uh, conversation. Um, Eric and I have had that discussion on the Apologetics Live uh, podcast as well. Um, and we'll be talking about his book on contemporary philosophy. So if you guys are interested in that, I'll be uh, putting the link on for that video on Monday, but um, Eric. I'd like to thank you so much. Uh, this is always as, as, as always as fun. If I, if my, my face looks like really serious and my voice is monotone, uh, it's been a long day, but I'm sure you understand as well. So thank you so much. I hope people find, uh, this helpful and where do people go if they want to look up your stuff?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. And I'm glad you brought up the Bible because like you said, you did ask books on apologetics. And of right. course we'd both hope and assume people watching this are already reading their Bible. Amen. And of course Amen. you make a very good point of that yeah, you, you can't defend what you don't know you're defending. Um yeah. and that's always where, and when, I know you
0: know that. I wasn't trying. I, I, we all know that. Obviously, we, we need to know scripture. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. But well, I, I trust you. It's just you know, there's there's there are certain there can be People. some Christians who can <laughs> uh, pull scripture out of context, but know how to pull videos out of context. Sure, so, absolutely. Uh, I, I yeah, so I just wanted to say that not for you, but. You know, hey, whatever. Um, So, yes, uh, they can find me uh, at Um, can There's links to my YouTube as well. Facebook, I try to stay active on there. You can find out where I'm speaking at next, what I'm doing, um, whether it's debates coming up or anything like that. I have debates on abortion, the soul, um, even… conversation about Molinism, things like that, that would be youtube.com slash C slash Eric Hernandez. Mm -hmm. You can go in there and and find a lot of content. And
0: your debates are excellent, especially the one on abortion, uh, because I teach apologetics at the school I work at, and we covered a topic on abortion. I had the kids watch uh, that debate, which I think you did excellent. Um, So definitely check out his stuff. Eric, thank you so much for your time, dude. Um, Hopefully we can get something going. Um, Next time I'll have like five cups of coffee next to me and uh maybe it'll be a little more animated but uh i do appreciate your time man
1: no thank you very much and and yeah same here and i I appreciate the time appreciate you having me on and yeah it's been a long day for me too because yesterday we did that late night discussion as well so yes yes
0: all right man well take care guys god bless and um i'll i'll give you a quick buzz once the video is over just to kind of uh, cap things up okay all right all right take care and god bless guys Bye bye Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, If you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, We have a a PayPal account set up. Uh, You can... um, uh, Help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealedapologetics. And that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, Apologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless. we